You're listening to the Seabreeze Church Podcast. Morning, everyone. Good to see you today. We're in a a four-part series of messages um, that Elliot mentioned. We're calling it emotional intelligence. And what we're looking at is the inside world of our emotions, something we now commonly refer to as our mental health. And we're considering four emotions that take up a, a great deal of the mental health landscape. We're looking at these four, sad, mad, glad, and bad. Now, three of these emotions are the dark emotions that we are trying to overcome, sad, mad, and bad. And one, of course, is the emotion that we're trying to figure out how to get more of, and that is glad. Now, our guide for this series is the largest book in the Bible, the book of Psalms. Psalms is in the middle of the Bible, and Psalms is, for the most part, uh, a book consisting of poetry. When it comes to our emotions, our inside world, poetry is probably the the best language, the best kind of language to give expression to what's going on in our inside world. Today we turn our attention to the emotion of anger, mad. I think it's pretty obvious to all of us that there is a lot of anger out there right now. And there's probably a lot of anger in here too, inside of us. Last month I was at Seacliff looking for a parking spot. One car was backing out in front of me. Another car was driving by. Of course, this is a common parking lot dilemma. Since two cars can't occupy the same space at the same time, someone needs to yield. Someone needs to stop moving. Well, neither of them did. And eventually, they couldn't move. They were bumper to bumper. So one driver got out of his car and started yelling, I mean, just screaming at the other driver. I thought it was going to get physical. It didn't. But it did get the attention of everyone within earshot. I mean, you could just see everyone stop and all the heads turn to look at this scene of rage. And that's what anger does. The the emotional volume of anger is very loud. It's not subtle. But the volume of anger's demands tends to drown out the deeper message that God is trying to communicate through our anger. We're going to look at that deeper message this morning. There's a lot of anger in the book of Psalms because, well, There's a lot of anger in all of us. And the truth is, God himself, turns out, is also angry. Here's what King David, the author of most of the Psalms, says in Psalm 7, verse 6. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Rise up against the rage of my enemies. Awake, my God. Decree justice. What David is saying is, God, look at what my enemies are doing. It's wrong. Doesn't that make you angry, God? And if it makes you angry like I think it does, then why does it look like you're asleep at the justice switch? I mean, wake up, God, and do something about this. Anger, it turns out, is pretty much a call to action. Anger says it's not right for people to do this and get away with it, whatever it is. And so, since it appears that no one is going to fix this, no one's going to make this wrong right, including God sometimes, he seems like he's not concerned about it, then that justifies us in anger to take action. Now, the two drivers were yelling at each other about a driving matter, who should yield. But what they were really screaming about was justice, right and wrong. A small matter of justice, yes, but justice nonetheless. Each thought that the other was wrong and had wronged them, and they were not about to let this small injustice go. 
So let me give you a working definition of justice. This is how justice feels to us. Justice is the way things should be. It's just the way things should be. Now, true justice has two requirements. It requires authority, and it requires power. First, authority. Authority answers the what is right question and what is wrong question. That requires an authoritative answer. In order for us to have a sense of justice and have an anger about injustice, we have to be pretty clear that this is wrong. It's not enough for it to be, I think maybe it's wrong. I, I'm not sure, but I think, no, we, we need an authoritative answer. So true justice requires, first of all, authority, but then it requires power. Power answers the, well, who's going to make it right question. You know, what is right? What is wrong? And then who's going to make the wrongs right? That requires power. So true justice is always connected to a recognized authority. We call the limits of a particular authority a jurisdiction. You know, it may be a city, maybe a state, maybe a nation. Each of these jurisdictions has its laws. It's by its authority, they declare in this city, in this state, in this nation, these are the laws. This is what's right. These are where the lines are, and this is what's wrong. But attached to that authority is a power. There is a justice system that addresses the well, who's going to make it right when someone does wrong question? And there's a whole justice system to address that. There is authority and there is power. Now, God, of course, is the authority above every authority. He has no jurisdictional limits. He is the one ultimately that says what is right and what is wrong. And he ultimately will be the one to make every wrong right. And what this means is that our anger can only take one of two forms. Either it's a righteous anger, which means we are angry about something that God is angry about. We are angry because God's authority has been ignored and his laws have been violated. That makes our anger right, righteous. It makes it noble. But the truth is, most of our anger is not of the righteous anger kind. Most of it is the second kind, which is personal anger. Personal anger is simply, my authority has been ignored. So exactly how big is our jurisdiction? How far does it extend? Well, about the end of your nose, that's how far your jurisdiction goes. And God has put you in charge of you. And if you try to get in charge of someone else, you discover it doesn't work very well. I mean, you may be a parent for a while and have authority over your children, but it doesn't take very long for them to exert their will and for there to be a struggle that is right and good as you train children, but eventually they grow up and it's back to you. You're in charge of you. Now, the evidence of the limits of our authority show up in our lack of power to enforce anything beyond us. It's really hard for us to make anyone to do what we think they should do. People just naturally resist us trying to run their lives, appropriately so. This is why personal anger is so loud, so powerful, because it tries to make up for in the sound of its bark what it lacks in the, sound of, in the size of its bite. It, it's bluster. It's, it's an attempt to seem more powerful than it really is. So the parking lot issue that I witnessed, you look at that and you say, why are two grown individuals getting upset over a little piece of asphalt? I mean, it's not worth it. 
But my guess, I don't know, but my guess is that both of these individuals had been carrying a good amount of anger around with them already about things that they couldn't do anything about. Maybe there were some issues in their marriage or at home that were just not right, and they couldn't make them right. Or maybe on the job there was some injustice, and they, it wasn't going to be made right. Or maybe as they viewed our nation, there's a lot to be angry about right now. Or maybe they just watched a bunch of news, and news, you know, news gives you 10 things to get really mad about that you can't do anything about. So maybe they just watched some news or listened to some news. But what happened is they finally stumbled on something small enough that they thought, you know what? I think I can exercise authority here. And they couldn't. It was a stalemate because they ran into somebody else who was trying to expand their little kingdom too. So the question is, how do you know if your anger is righteous or personal? Well, that can be tricky because we tend to have a habit of signing God's name to our thoughts. And we come up with an idea, and it, to us, it just, well, this is what everyone should do. And when we say that, we just assume that God agrees. Not because we found a verse in the Bible, but because it just seems right. And therefore, God must agree. And because we sign God's names to our ideas, that tends to provide a lot of the energy and the justification for our anger. That makes us feel like we're soldiers in a noble fight of justice. When in fact, the truth may be that we're just selfish, arrogant people who are trying to bully other people to get our own way. That's not very noble. The other one sounds right and noble. So when we are angry, it's really hard to discern whether it's righteous or personal. What should we do? David suggests this in Psalm 4, verse 4. In your anger, do not sin. When you're on your beds, search your hearts and be silent. So this is an anger that's keeping you up at night. David says, be really careful to not act at this point because in anger, it's likely you're going to do something you're going to regret. So search your hearts. And be silent. Anger feels like a call to action. But God says, first, it's a call to thought. It's a call to reflection. You know, the common advice with anger is what? Count to ten. Right? And the reason is because we know that anger is fast. And it can cause us to do some really dumb things, to sin. So we need to slow down and think rather than just react. But of course, it's going to take much longer than 10 seconds to really think, to do this, to understand the important message that God is delivering to us through our anger. Anger, like all of our emotions, is a voice from our soul, a message that God is trying to communicate to us. And so this morning, we're going to use three words to think more deeply about our anger and the demand for justice that drives it. These three words are the words that we use to think about justice. It's a very common topic these days. These are three justice words, and here they are. Comparison, compensation, and compassion. We'll look through these in order. Now, you notice they all start with the same three letters. They have the same prefix, C-O-M. That prefix means together. These are things 
that go together, that we think should go together. So justice tells us what's supposed to go together, how things are supposed to fit, how things should be. Anger tells us when there's a break, when things that we think should go together are not going together. So let's look at these three. First is comparison. This is the justice we expect. We look around us, and we expect what other people are getting. We compare. We expect fairness. And what we define by fairness is sameness. And if we see difference, that just feels wrong. That's injustice. And that's because comparison, the root of the word comparison is par. P-A-R means equal or standard. So if you golf, par is the standard of measurement. You're either over par or under par. And when we compare, when we compare to each other, what we're saying is we should all be the same. We should be equal to one another. We use each other as the standard and we call it fairness. And when there is a difference between us, well, something must be wrong. Something is unjust. We demand that it be made right. We think, and this is important to understand, we think that there should be a link between what others get and what I get. We expect par. That's what happens when we compare ourselves to each other. So sameness is the modern definition of justice. No one should have any more than anyone else. Now, under this definition, the amount of injustices are going to keep multiplying because there's a lot of difference. And you're going to discover more and more ways that people are different from each other. And if justice equals sameness, there's going to be more and more kinds of justice causes. And that's what we're seeing right now in our culture. The word justice is being attached to more and more things. One of the things that's been pretty sad to see is a, a new term that's come up over just, I think, probably the last three years is when I first heard it. It's called reproductive justice. I don't know if you've heard of reproductive justice. It's about the abortion issue. But it's not usually said in those terms anymore. It's talked about reproductive justice. And the reason is this. You know, it's not fair for a woman's life to be more impacted by a pregnancy than a man's life is. Now, that's a fact. My wife paid a much higher price to have our two kids than I did. And that is not fair. That, that's not at all the same. The problem, though, is in order to make this fair, we're willing to go as far as to take the life of an unborn child, to make it the same, to make everything the same. And it just isn't the same. Now, more recently, we're hearing about housing justice. This is a new form of justice I hadn't heard about until this year. The idea is it's not fair for landlords who have more money to kick out tenants who have less money, especially in this global pandemic. And the truth is it's not fair by this definition. It's not the same. But of course, it doesn't take much thinking to realize, well, then how is it fair for the landlords who probably have to pay a mortgage on the property and probably have to maintain the property? How is it fair for them to not receive any income to do that with? It's not fair. And here's the challenge, and it goes on and on. I mean, I was watching the news last night, and now it's voting justice, and it just, just goes on and on and on. And there are some issues, but justice is just being attached to everything because the goal now is for everyone to be the same. 
And what happens is when sameness becomes the standard of what is right and wrong, anger actually grows. It doesn't go down, and injustice grows. And that, I believe, is why we are seeing more and more anger in our nation. What happens is those with less are given more and more reasons to be angry. They get angrier and angrier. And those with more have more and more of it taken away from them, which makes them angry. So everyone just gets angrier and angrier. And the reason that this definition is inadequate is because God created a world not of sameness, but of great complexity and tremendous difference. He actually calls that beautiful. We call that unfair. You see, every one of us is different. That's why no one person can be the standard of fairness. You know, if I were to total up how much money we spent on our two kids growing up, I haven't done it, but I'm sure it would not be the same. <laughs> why? Is it because my wife and I secretly love one child more than the other? No. It's because they're different. They were interested in different extracurricular activities, different sports. You know, hockey equipment is much more expensive than basketball equipment. So if there's different sports, there's different amounts of money. They were different. They had different teeth. <laughs> the orthodontia bill for one was twice what it was for the other. That's not fair. That's right. It's not the same. It's not fair. And they were different, different genders. You know, we spent a lot more on clothes for my daughter than we did for my son. You know, one pair of jeans a year, he was good to go. A couple <laughs> T-shirts, some shoes, done. Not my daughter. Well, that's not fair. Well, then when it came to driving, we spent a lot more insuring him than we did insuring her. Well, that's not fair. No, it isn't. Because the genders are different. So when we compare and expect to get what we see other people getting... We are appealing to a link that God does not honor, a link that does not exist in reality. And therefore, we're chasing our justice tales. We're not going to resolve that one because God customizes life. He is creative, and his purposes are complex. And he gives some people more and some people less. He gives some gifts this way and some gifts that way. He allows some people to be born in dire situations and some people to be born in privilege, and his, comp his purposes are worked through that. But here's the challenge with this comparison thing. Our comparison reflex is not entirely wrong. There is a grain of truth in this, and that's why it has so much power whenever we see a lack of sameness. There is an element that should be the same. There is a link between us and all the people around us, but it's not in getting the exact same life. The link is this. It's in being treated with the exact same value. That's what should be the same. Everything else is different, but your value and my value before God is exactly the same. Regardless of the circumstances of my life, regardless of how much I have or you have or someone doesn't have or someone else has, our value is the same. 
And that's why if I'm standing in line at Costco waiting my turn and you take cuts, I get angry. I haven't seen any of you particularly do it. The reason I get angry and you get angry in that situation is because the person taking cuts is acting like they're more important than you, that their time is more valuable than yours. And that's just not true. That's just not right. They may have more money than you. They may be more gifted than you. They may have a lot more privilege than you, but they are not more important than you. They're not more valuable than you. But this kind of thing happens all the time, not just in Costco. That's a minor thing. All the time, people say words that hurt and degrade and devalue other people. All the time, every day around the world, people block other people from getting what they've worked hard for. Or they take credit for something they haven't done that someone else did. Or they steal from somebody else. We live in a broken world full of sinful people and being treated with equal value, sadly, is rare. So what are we to do with this kind of justified anger? The kind of justice that we look around and rightly expect. Well, this is what David says in Psalm, 70, or Psalm 37, 7 through 8. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret when men succeed in their ways, when they carry out their wicked schemes. Refrain from anger and turn from wrath. Here's the key. Do not fret. It only leads to evil. So if you are treated unjustly, and you are the victim of a wicked scheme, get justice if you can. We live in a time and a place where your chances of getting justice are better than almost any other place in any other time in history. But it's still rare. If you can get it, that's right, get it. That's why we have a justice system. But what if you can't? Well, don't let the injustice eat you up on the inside is what David is saying. Don't let anger loose. So how can we do that? I mean, anger is powerful. How can we refrain from anger? It means hold back anger and turn away from wrath. Well, the answer that's being given here is by not fretting. This is the first step of three that we're going to look at attached to each of these words. Fret means to let your mind run, to just let it spin on this. That's what anger does. Anger replays the wrong that's done, and it schemes how to get even. David says that only is going to lead to more evil. It's almost impossible for you to take justice into your own hands and not create some injustice in the process of getting justice. You're going to add to the amount of evil in this world. So for each of these three words we're looking at this morning, the COM words, Psalms gives us an action step to take when we're angry. And so this is kind of a a three-part. These are connected. It's a three-part move. The first is... Don't fret. Just, just stop spinning your mind. Now, that's not enough because we have to have something to do, and that's what we're going to look at as we move on. But first is don't fret. Fretting takes justice into its own hands and only multiplies the evil and the anger in the world. Waiting puts justice into God's hands and says he's the only one ultimately that can make this right. So the question then is, why do we have to wait for God's justice? 
I mean, we don't want to wait. Why is God waiting? I mean, in, in the Bible, the phrase that's used over and over again is God is slow to anger. The question is, why? Why be so slow to anger? We are quick to anger. God is not. Why? Doesn't he care about injustice like we do? Oh, he does, even more so. But God knows that there's more going on than the justice we expect. There is, secondly, the justice we deserve. That's compensation. That's the second word. Compensation is the justice we deserve. C-O-M means together, plus the root of this word, pension. What does pension mean? To settle accounts. That's what the word means. So you work on your job, and you are earning income. And then on payday, what you have done turns into money. Your work account is settled. Every month, every week, a couple times a month, you are compensated for the work you've done. You work, you get money. A pension fund, this is why the, we call them a pension fund. A pension fund is what you work years to put money into, or the company adds money into. And then when you retire, the money that's been put in now begins to fund your retirement. You get what you've earned. Payday on a longer scale. So compensation means there's a link between what you do and what you get. You are compensated for what you do. So what have we exactly been earning day by day and year by year with our time? Well, we all tend to think more. We deserve more than what we've got. God is of a different mind on this. God says, actually, we deserve less. In fact, it turns out we're in the hole. We have a debt problem. Not a, we're not getting everything we are, are deserving of. Why? Why are we in a debt? It's because we've all been breaking God's laws day after day and year after year. And that is an account that must be settled ultimately with God. That is the justice that we all deserve, and it represents a debt that none of us can pay. So in Psalm 51, verse 3 through 4, David says this about this word. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. David wrote this right after he had committed adultery with Bathsheba and arranged the death of her husband to cover it up. Now, what's amazing is David justified his actions for the better part of a year. So finally, God sends the prophet Nathan to confront David with a story. And God actually uses David's anger to open David's eyes about his own sin. Let me read the story. 2 Samuel 12, 1 through 4. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, this is Nathan talking now, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and another poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised it and grew up, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arm. This was a pet. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man ref 
may refrain from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come. He killed it. How do you feel about this story? Angry. You're right. This is unjust. It's wrong to treat anyone this way. David agreed. The next verses, 5 through 7, David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. David had done the same thing as the man in this story had done, only much worse. He didn't just steal a man's pet. He stole a man's wife and took the man's life. But David was so full of what he thought he deserved that he didn't see it. And before you start shaking your head at David, this is an invitation to turn our thoughts on us. It's the same with us. We may not have done this exact thing, but we get angry about the wrong that others have done to us, and we miss our wrong. So here's the second part of the action steps. When you're angry, look at yourself. When you're angry at somebody else, look at yourself. If you've ever been betrayed to or lied to or cheated on, you know how God feels about your betrayal of him. Own your own anger as a reminder of how serious sin is. You see, when we're angry, it's an opportunity to look at ourselves and listen to God say, you are the man, you are the woman. You do this to me. We tend to make a big deal about the sin of other people against us, and we minimize our own. That's just human nature. And so anger is one of the loudest and clearest invitations we will get from God to feel the full weight of our sin. So don't pull a David and justify your sin by thinking about how you deserve more than you're getting. If we look at ourselves honestly, we'll realize, oh, we're getting way more than we deserve. And that brings us to the last word, compassion. This, it turns out, is the justice that we need. What we really need is forgiveness. That's what our anger, anger is telling us. You see, forgiveness is a matter of justice. We often miss that. We tend to think that forgiveness is almost an emotion or, or an act of kindness. But at its core, forgiveness is a judicial act. It's an act of justice. You see, it's a payment of the debt that someone owes at great expense on the part of the one to whom that debt is owed. David had a tremendous debt out of this affair. I mean, he, he destroyed a family. He lost trust with a nation. How can he pay that back? Well, there's some things he could do, but for the most part, he couldn't pay it back. How do you make that right? The reason is because the ultimate debt for every sin goes straight to God. That's where the debt is, ultimately, is with him. So in that same psalm, David says this in verse 7, Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I'll be whiter than snow. What's he talking about? What magic power does a hyssop branch have to forgive sin? Well, it has no power, of course. What David is referring to is a time in Israel's history when God instructed his people to take the blood of a lamb 
and use a hyssop branch to spread it over the doorposts of their dwellings. That was an act of faith on that night, and what it meant was that the angel of death who was coming to every house in Egypt that night would pass over that house. This is where the Passover event comes from. It was a hyssop branch that was being used to put the blood on the doorpost. The idea was that death couldn't be avoided, but a lamb could die in the place of a person. Now, David knew that this was far more than a ritual. He knew that this was pointing to something in the future. He knew that God was doing this to point to a time in the future when his own son would pay for the forgiveness that we all need. His life would be given for ours in exchange for our debt. And that time was 2,000 years ago, and that person was Jesus Christ. He was God in flesh. And what he did on the cross is often referred to as the passion, the passion of Christ. That's the root of the word compassion. The word passion means to suffer, to suffer with. What happened on that cross is God decided to link himself to our justice predicament and die for us, to suffer for us, to pay our debt. He died a death that he did not deserve to give us a future that we do not deserve. That death of Jesus on the cross was still in the future for David. It was still to come, but he knew it was his only hope of forgiveness. Because forgiveness isn't just a magic wand. It isn't just a sentiment. It is an act of justice. It requires payment. And today, if we ask Jesus to scrub us clean of our sin, we can have a very different future than our past deserves. And that new future, that doesn't wait until the day we die. It begins the moment we ask Jesus for the justice that we need, his compassion, his mercy, his forgiveness. And this brings us to the third part of our three-part step of action. First, we don't fret. Second, we look at ourselves. Third, we forgive them. Why? Because anger is a great reminder of the justice we need. It's a reminder that sin is a big deal. That's why we're angry. That's why God is angry. We demand justice in this situation because God demands justice in all situations. And in the end, there will only be two kinds of justice. The justice we deserve and will get or the justice we need and have asked for. When we forgive in the face of justified anger, we are saying more loudly than words could ever say, God has forgiven me, so I will forgive you. This is the only answer to the anger in our culture. We will never accomplish sameness. We will never accomplish righteous justice in this life. Forgiveness is the only answer. There is so much to be angry about in this world. And we are often right to be angry. But as David said, in your anger, don't sin. When you're on your beds, because you just chewed up with anger, search your hearts and be silent. Think through this. Listen to what anger is saying. There is a God who is angry about our sin. That's why we're angry about this. But he is slow to anger, abounding in love, and he offers forgiveness to all of us. But here's the key. This link 
is not automatic. We must accept the link of compassion. Compassion is offered, but it must be received for it to be connected to our debt. So if you've never accepted this offer, I would encourage you to do it today. How do you do that? Real quick, the ABCs of accepting God's forgiveness. A, admit the debt of your sin. Just be honest. Admit the debt of your sin. B, believe that Jesus' payment is payment in full, that there's nothing you can do to pay for your sin. You can't pay enough. And C, commit to follow Jesus. This is not a one-time deal. This is not a one-time transaction. This is a lifetime transaction. This is not, Jesus, could you forgive me for that so I can go and mess up some more? No, it's Jesus, could you forgive my life? I'm probably going to mess up some more, but that's not my goal. My goal is to follow you and grow now. That's the commit part, ABCs. I would encourage you to do that if you haven't. If you have any questions about what's involved in following Jesus Christ, on the connection cards that we fill out every Sunday, there's a box that you can ask for more information. If you have made this decision for the first time, and you're willing to, let us know so we can help you take some of the next steps of growth. Let's pray. Father, the anger that boils inside of us is such a small fraction of the justified anger that you have as you look at our sin and the sin of this world. And in light of that, it's just amazing that you haven't said enough and ended it all. But today is another day of your great mercy. You have extended mercy. That's why we're breathing. That's why we're alive. And so today we are once again getting much more than we deserve. And I pray that in this window of time, however long your mercy lasts, I pray that you would help us and more and more to accept your compassion, to accept the payment that Jesus paid for, to forgive us that justice that we need. We thank you for that. We ask that you'd help us to grow. And when we're angry, Father, just remind us of the great mercy you've given us so that we might extend that to others. We pray for our nation embroiled in just sinking into deeper and deeper rage. Oh, God, I pray that the good news of Jesus would be heard more and more and would turn anger into gratitude. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Seabreeze Church podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, seabreezechurch.com. Thanks again for listening in, and we hope you'll join us next week for the Seabreeze Church podcast.